This evening, I'd like to speak about healing. To be born with the capacity to feel is to be intrinsically exposed to both joy and pain. These pairs a fundamental facet of our existence, of our life. All of us in our life will encounter experiences that are challenging, that are difficult, that are at times deeply painful. None of us are exempt. None of us are invincible. There isn't any living being who is able through strategies or through armor or through self-protection who is able to totally transcend the actuality of pain. In our lives our bodies age and die, they become sick or frail. Our minds have the capacity to become very entangled in knots of suffering. We will all, simply through the very rhythms of life, encounter loss and separation and failure. Sometimes we will experience the pain of being deprived of what we want, and sometimes we'll experience the pain of receiving what we don't want. When we also look at the world around us, we see that this capacity for pain to be hurt is the thread that runs through all of existence, from the smallest creature to the most powerful person. We also see that no pain exists in isolation. Sometimes emotionally we feel harmed by the anger of another, by the rage of another, or by the misunderstanding of another. We may find ourselves subjected to words or to actions from other people that hurt us deeply. There are moments when we are able to have enough spaciousness around our own feelings of heart to really even ask the question where does anger begin in this story of this other person where does even the tradition of anger begin in our world our own lives are interwoven intrinsically interwoven with the lives and the stories of countless other people we inherit in many ways, really from the moment of our birth, we inherit in many ways the stories and the lives and the responses actually of countless generations before us. Sometimes we may feel that in our own being that we live with the pain of fear. And we sometimes in a reflective moment perhaps try and trace the beginning of that fear. And sometimes in that journey we see that fear or the beginnings of fear seem to stretch into a time before we were ever even born. 
there is no experience of pain that ever exists in isolation. Looking at the conflicts in our world, we see the ways in which hatred and greed and fear is passed down from generation to generation. We also see that pain pain is the nature of separation. To be separated from what we love or what we want or what we feel that we need, this is painful. Look at any time when we feel separated from what we feel we want and need. To be separated from ourselves is painful. To feel in our minds and in our hearts that we are living out somebody else's story. To not really know what is true in ourselves. To not even know what is authentic in ourselves. To, to live with that sense of really not knowing who we are. This is also painful. Now some of the pain that we encounter in our lives, it could be said that it's almost part of the package of being a human being. If we love, we are exposed possibly to loss. If we care about something or someone, then we are exposed to the possibility of disappointment. Intimacy brings with it the companion of possible separation. And part of our wisdom as a human being, part of the wisdom of being awake, is actually learning how to embrace the changing rhythms of our lives, the changing truth of our lives, the changing truth of our bodies. Learning how to embrace all of this with grace and with understanding. Some of the pain that we experience in our lives is perhaps really not just intrinsically a part of being a human being, but some of the pain that we experience in our lives is the pain of confusion, the pain that is born of not understanding. In Buddhist terminology it would be said the pain that is born of ignorance. The pain that comes out of denying or avoiding the truth of life's rhythm life's changes and life's actualities. The truth of uh, the pain that comes from attempting to protect ourselves from change, from impermanence. The pain that comes from refusing to accept that there really is no guarantees in this life. That there is really very little that is actually certain. The pain that comes from perhaps trying to find refuge in things that can offer us no, no true refuge. Trying to find refuge in, in roles or identities or in thought patterns or in protection. Trying to find refuge in places that can actually really offer us no sanctuary. The result is pain. Some of pain we experience is the pain that comes from, from clinging, from holding, from refusing to let go. The pain that comes from believing that actually holding and clinging, we, we want to believe it's a path to the end of suffering where actually it brings suffering. Where, wherever there is pain, there is 
a call for and a need for healing through forgiveness, through compassion, through wisdom. I think sometimes people, you know, when they, they do a little bit of reading about Buddhism or whatever, I think sometimes people have the impression that Buddhism is a little bit obsessed with suffering, you know, because you, you do hear these statements actually mistranslated of the Buddha, where you, know, you hear these statements that say, life is suffering. The Buddha never actually said that, but you hear it quite frequently. Buddhism, Buddhist teaching is not actually obsessed with suffering. It is somewhat obsessed with healing. It is somewhat obsessed with freedom. Suddenly, the teaching and practice of meditation is totally in the service of the end of suffering. It's totally in the service of healing. The Buddha was once asked, was, was once asked how, how should we respond how should we act when we are faced with pain in our lives, when we are faced with the unsatisfactory, when we are faced with the challenging? And the Buddha answered, in response to this question, the Buddha answered that in, in the face of pain, in the face of, suffer, face of suffering, that there are different paths that open to us, that are offered to us. And some of these paths will actually perpetuate pain, and some of these paths will bring about the end of pain. And in reading the way in which the Buddha described the possible responses to pain 2,500 years ago, I find it fascinating what um, slow learners we are as human beings. Right? 2,500 years ago, we were still modeling over these same things. How do we respond to pain? The Buddha spoke that one of the paths that can be followed, and one of the avenues that open to us when we are faced with the painful, is the path of blame. And sometimes this is the path we adopt when we are faced with the challenging or difficult blame. And blame is essentially anger. When we feel hurt in our lives, hurt by another person, hurt by the words or the relationship of another person, when we feel deeply hurt, more than just, you know, a passing bruising of our feelings, on an essential level, our whole sense of who we are can feel to be wounded. Our whole sense of who we are can feel to be wounded by the rejection or the judgment or the contempt of others. Sometimes feeling wounded by a relationship with others, by the words or actions of others, that feeling wounded often give ri gives rise to feelings within ourselves of inadequacy, of being worthless, of self-judgment, of powerlessness. These are more than just fleeting feelings that arise and pass. Many times they become in us very deeply held belief systems. They say, I'm unworthy, I'm useless, you know, or I'm inadequate, I'm a victim. There are so many ways 
in which we can begin to describe what is essentially a wounded sense of vision of ourselves, which in turn shapes and molds our relationship to almost everything in our lives, which in turn shapes and molds our vision of the world around us. When we do awake in our lives, and many times we awaken in our lives, to the damage that is caused in ourselves to carrying around a wounded sense of vision, at times we feel very angry, and many times our anger is translated into blame. Now, there are times, I feel, when anger actually can be somewhat useful. Because one of the characteristics of a very wounded sense of vision that is built upon feelings of inadequacy or worthlessness, one of the very characteristics of a wounded sense of vision is a lack of energy, a feeling of of powerlessness, a feeling of incapacity. And in some ways, awakening, even awakening where there is a flavor of anger, can be a vehicle which awakens a tremendous amount of energy within us. Now that energy, if it is embraced with wisdom, can inspire us to question, to look anew, to investigate, to to reach out, to understand. It can be an inspiring sense of, of energy and vision. That energy of anger, if it is embraced with confusion, becomes extraordinarily disabling because it becomes blame. And blame, where does blame go? Blame very rarely reaches in a way in which we feel that we are moving on in our lives. Blame is usually about the past. Blame is about what has already gone by. Blame is about what has happened. And sometimes blame actually ties us to pain. Blame can tie us to pain. There's a story of a person, a man who was walking in the woods, and somebody shot him with an arrow, and he falls over, and people rush to his aid to try and help him and to pull the arrow out. And he... As people rush to his aid, he says, hold on a minute, you know, don't touch that arrow. Before you touch that arrow, I want to know who shot it, what direction it came from, what kind of wood it was made from, you know, what the bow was made of, why that person shot it at me. Before you even touch that arrow, I want to know all of this. And the person who said it was trying to help him said, wouldn't it be simpler just to take the arrow out? But no blame can tie us. Blame can tie us to pain. It's a kind of marriage. Now, pain, sometimes in our lives, I mean, I I personally can't subscribe to this belief system that says, you know, if we're in pain, it's somehow all our fault and all all our lack of understanding. I think this is a kind of spiritual neurosis that can grow up, you know, within us where... You know, if we feel that something, uh, you know, if we feel some 
sadness or objection or to the world or something that is happening, we, we always assume this position, well, it's because I'm not accepting enough or not generous enough or not loving enough or not wise enough. This is actually a, a spiritual neurosis. Um, pain can have very real causes. Some of the pain we experience in our eyes can have very real causes that lie outside of ourselves. The truth about the cause of the, uh, the pain we experience may very well lie in the events that are taking place in our lives, in the words or the actions of another. But something happens with blame, which is a disservice to ourselves. Because blame, I think, is a very subtle form of wanting, of needing, of dependency. When we blame, we are fixated. There's no doubt we can become obsessed, we become contracted. And if we think of a situation where we have been hurt and where we have a lot of blame going on, you know, it's your fault, it's all your fault, what is the energy that is actually keeping that sense of blame and contraction alive? We want something from another person. Sometimes we want an apology or we want an admission of guilt or... We want them to suffer in the same way that we're suffering. Um, we want them to tell us what a mistake they made, you know, and to how sorry they've ever made this mistake. And this wanting keeps us tied to what has already gone by. So a woman who spoke about, you know, she had a, grew up in a terrible relationship with her father where she felt very rejected and very misused and she really hated her father and when she was in her late teens she decided you know, she would never speak to her father again, never. And for many years she never did, never did. And one day her mother wrote her and, and told her that her father had died. And even then, you know, she said, no way, you know, you're a terrible person, you know, he's the cause of everything that ever went on in my life. But she refused to go to his funeral. And the, actually the months, the weeks and the months passed and she found herself still all the time thinking about her father. I mean, he was gone. He had, you know, there was no, he wasn't suffering. He was, but she was thinking about her father, all the things he did wrong, the, the way he should have been different. And, and she said one day she came to realize actually that she had adopted this suffering as a, as a tradition. That this had become her tradition was to suffer. There was nothing actually, there was truth in the events of her life, but she had ad adopted or translated the truth of those events in her life as being the truth of herself. And maybe there is a distinction between the truth of the events in our lives and the truth of ourselves. Sometimes when we find ourselves tied to what has gone by, we see that we are not actually free to move on in our lives and we are tied to blame. We are not free to move on in the present. And at some point I think it's a very real question to ask of ourselves. At what point are we really no longer following a path of healing? At what point are we actually perpetuating a path of suffering. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being quite ill in your life, you know, really ill, physically ill. And there is the 
the pain that comes with being ill, but there can be an equal amount of pain that comes with actually not knowing what the illness is. Actually not knowing what the, what the illness is. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience of you being ill for a time and then you, you go to a doctor, or maybe you go to many doctors, and eventually someone comes up with a diagnosis. And it can feel like such a relief. You know, oh, you know, now I know what's wrong with me. How I know what's wrong with me. And, and even having that diagnosis can somehow can, can be very helpful in, in helping us to, to find the support, the medicines, the remedies that we need. But then perhaps we recover. Perhaps we recover. And then we would think it very strange of ourselves if we were then for many years afterwards to relate everything, to define everything in our lives from that standpoint of illness. From the standpoint of illness. Sometimes we can do this, perhaps not in relationship to physical illness, but in, in relationship to ourselves in other ways. In, in our culture, I think we actually live in a culture of blame. I'm still waiting for the day in a meditation retreat when somebody decides to sue their sitting partner for breathing too loudly or you know, interfering with their enlightenment or in some way. I mean, we live in such a culture of blame, which is really a culture of labels. You know, increasingly, we are a culture of labels. We say, I am. And usually our labels are describing something actually that we feel is wrong with ourselves. Our labels are often describing in some way a wounded sense of vision. A wounded sense of vision. I read this most phenomenal statistic today. <laughs> we said that in America, and uh, this is no slight upon America, but my apologies, Americans here. But in America, there are, in 1990, there were 15 million people participating in some sort of recovery group, which involved going to some 500,000 meetings were held every week, which involved some sort of recovery program. And to be involved in a recovery program, you, you have to belong. You have to have the the name, you have to have the label, you have to have the identity, you have to have the experience. It's not in any way to dismiss the value of recovery groups, but to see increasingly in our world how there is this inclination to describe ourselves by what is amiss, by what we feel is wounded, what is wrong with us. We can become very stuck in those labels. Now, clear comprehension, I think, is actually a significant part of healing. To know how to support ourselves, to know how to seek a path of well-being, a path of freedom. It is helpful for us to know the holes that we fall in, the places where we get stuck, you know, the places where we feel out of balance. But clear comprehension is something very different than blame. Blame is about the past. Blame is about being stuck. Whereas clear comprehension, I think, is about awareness. It's about being present. 
about being in touch with a present which is endlessly changing, that as much as we might be aware of the holes that we fall in, the places where we get stuck, the repetitions of, of tendencies, we are also appreciating our capacity to see this, honoring our capacity to be present, to understand, to deepen, to let go. Clear comprehension is about a present that is fluid and open and that is filled with an invitation to learn. We cannot ever undo or erase anything which has actually gone by in our lives. And there are few possibilities of change within the events that have gone by. There are enormous possibilities of change in our relationship to those events. Just as there are enormous possibility of change in relationship to the ways in which we hold ourselves, our sense of vision. The first step, I think, is in healing. Must be, I feel, the willingness to let go of what has already gone by, because only then are we ever really free to be present, to listen well to this moment, and to open to the possibilities of change. The second path that the Buddha spoke about in relationship to meeting the difficult or painful in our lives was the path of despair. You know that feeling that we may have encountered of why does this happen to me? Or why does this always happen to me is usually the mantra. Why does this always happen to me? What have I done to deserve this? I must have done something to deserve this. Or the feeling of resignation. There is nothing I can do to change this. Despair is an incredibly dark prison and it is also a kind of anger. It is an anger of frustration, an anger of powerlessness and it carries with it with such a heaviness of spirit. Despair is easy to see. Nothing new is begun because failure is already forecast. Nothing new is reached for because limitation is already accepted. Well-being and happiness and richness always seems to be the territory of somebody else. And despair is a darkness that is fueled by the belief, I can't. I can't. And you know how we compensate for I can't? Fantasy. This is, I think, the great signal of the despairing mind. It's the refuge of the sanctuary the despairing mind seeks for is fantasy. Fantasy imagining, you know, the the grand dreams, the exciting fantasies, uh, you know, the romantic fantasies, the, the happy, delighted fantasies. And this is the sanctuary of the despairing mind. Sometimes we meet the despairing mind in meditation. You know, you come to an edge. Maybe you, you find yourself in a place you've been in a million times before. You know, or you find yourself in relationship to a pain in your body and there is just that feeling of, I can't, 
and you can see the the temptation in that moment of feeling that I can't to kind of curl up in a little ball you know it's the time when you you know your knees come up your head goes down you know your shoulders go forward you know you can see I can't written all over the body you know as it sinks into the cushion you know <laughs> And we see the power of I can't, how it saps energy and how it is another belief system. It is another belief system that this is beyond me. This is too much. I don't have the resources to reach for what is possible. And how I can't is a kind of surrender. And again, many of the Many of the building blocks of that belief system do lie in past experiences of disappointment, of failure, of rejection, but they become enacted in our present relationships. They become enacted and alive in the present. I think we really need to be aware of the power that we give to the words, I can't. I mean, there's many things that we can't do. You know, we can't reverse the laws of gravity in our body. You know, we we maybe can't ever. You know, I I don't perceive myself as setting any Olympic records in this lifetime. I, you know, there's a number of things I can't do. Quite a few. But, but, that leaves a lot open to possibility enormous amount open to possibility. We are born with the capacity to be aware. We can nurture and foster our capacity to be awake. We, are, we can nurture this incredible gift and blessing of our capacity to be open, to see anew, to, to deepen in understanding, to deepen in wisdom, to understand what it means to be free. Just to have this blessing as the capacity to be awake and aware brings so much into the realm of possibility. The third path that the Buddha spoke about was the path of wisdom, the path of healing. It's a path of moving on. There is much pain, and I talked about, that is perhaps intrinsic to living. We see sorrow and grief, sadness. These pains we will not avoid in our lives and never try to avoid them because they reveal our humanness, they reveal our connectedness, they reveal our life and that sometimes our very connection with life brings with it pain. But it is not a pain of despair or blame, it is a pain of really understanding and being in tune with the very conditions of living. There may be pain that is intrinsic to life, but suffering is not necessarily intrinsic to life. Suffering perhaps may be more intrinsic to confusion or to ignorance or to not living in harmony with the nature of life. This is where we find suffering. You know, I've seen a t-shirt that uh, you know, we could promote here and written on the t-shirt, it says, suffering is optional. Suffering is optional. It's quite a revelation. Suffering is optional. A path of wisdom is actually dedicated to bringing about the end of suffering. It means t- 
turning towards those moments of pain, turning towards those instances of suffering, and looking deeply without fear, without rejection. How is this caused? How does it come to an end? You know, I think when we speak about healing, I think sometimes we speak about healing in a very limited way. But sometimes when we speak about healing, we think we speak about, oh, I'm going to heal, you know, this feeling of rejection, or I'm going to heal this feeling of unworthiness, I'm going to heal this feeling of, of loneliness. But I think this is very limited, because it has such an agenda. And not only does it have an agenda, but it means that we place ourselves in the position of being responsible for this healing. That I'm in charge of it. I'm going to make this happen. And it is, I think, a very, perhaps, limited way of seeing healing. And I think perhaps a more spacious approach to understanding the nature of healing is not so much to focus upon this specific or upon that specific, but to really look inside ourselves and to ask of ourselves, what are the qualities that actually allow healing to happen? What are the qualities that actually allow healing to take place? Without an agenda and without us being so particularly responsible to make something happen, because when we have an agenda, we have an image too. We have an image in our minds of what it looks like to be healed, what it looks like to be, to be free of, of self-judgment or to be free of feelings of worthlessness. And that image may be a hindrance. That image may be a hindrance. And I think certainly the feeling of being responsible and in charge of healing is most definitely a hindrance. To look at what are the qualities that allow healing to take place. The qualities that allow healing to take place are not blame, not despair. The quality of, of dwelling on what has already gone by is a practice of suffering. Fantasy is a practice of confusion, and conclusion is a surrender to suffering. Conclusions are a surrender to suffering. So one of the ingredients, I think, is that is really central to healing is a sense of vision. We need to trust, to have the faith within ourselves that it is possible to be free, that it is possible to know an end to suffering. That it's possible to be free of alienation, of hatred, of the burden of self-judgment. First, we must have this sense of vision. I mean, that seems very simple. But actually, this is the very, perhaps, first challenge of healing. Can anything ever unfold and change in an environment which is already rejecting it? If we have no faith, no trust, no sense of vision, we are actually rejecting any sense of possibility. And faith and confidence in the possibility of greatness of heart, of openness of understanding, is perhaps the first ingredient of any kind of transformation, any kind of healing. You know, you see how central that sense of vision is to any spiritual path. Have you ever met or encountered the story of any any deep spiritual teacher, profound spiritual teacher who didn't have that sense of vision. 
I mean, you know, suppose the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and said, you know, I just happen to be here by chance, you know, and if it's hot, I'm going home, you know, and, you know, and if the mosquitoes bite, I'm giving up, you know. No, the Buddha sat there, he said, you know, I'm going to sit here until I know what it means to be free. You know, this is true, surely. In all spiritual traditions, there is this sense of vision, this spark of inspiration, this profound faith in what is possible. Someone once asked the Dalai Lama, what is the most important thing to teach in in the spiritual path? The Dalai Lama said, the most important thing to teach is to convey a sense of faith and trust in a person's capacity to be free. And without this, all other spiritual teachings are perhaps not valuable. Vision is important. Vision is something that we actually cultivate on a moment-to-moment level. You know, it means actually really opening into and really being aware of those moments in our own practice and in our own lives when we find ourselves sinking, sinking, floundering in despair, surrendering to conclusions, adopting images as being the truth, adopting labels as being the truth of ourselves. Every moment that we see ourselves doing that, just to have the willingness to question, is this true? Is this true? Does this actually describe the whole truth of who I am? Does this describe the truth of this moment? Those moments when we feel, find ourselves sinking in feelings of, of alienation, of disconnection, to be able to question, is this true? That, that is what nurturing vision is about. Nurturing vision is not kind of fostering some grandiose image within ourselves, you know, of, you know, ascending into deva realms on a zafu. You know, vision is about what actually happens in this moment. What are the choices we are making? And vision is a profound ingredient in healing. In healing. The other qualities of healing, acceptance, spaciousness, generosity of heart, generosity of heart, allowing things to be. Another ingredient of healing, surrendering perhaps the responsibility of being so in charge of this process. You know, we are not in charge of what happens here. If we were really in charge of what happens here, we would probably only ever have to do one retreat in our lives, and it would be all over. You can see we're not really in charge. And everyone sees that immediately in meditation. I'm not actually in charge. We really need to accept that very deeply so that we can get out of the way. So we can get out of the way. And being in charge brings with it so much baggage. It doesn't mean being irresponsible. You know, the opposite of surrendering responsibility doesn't mean being irresponsible because we are so... It means being committed to offering to this moment dedication, commitment, the willingness to learn, the willingness to see, the willingness to open. All of those ingredients are born within us and they are our gift to the moment and our gift to ourselves. But that is very different than being in charge. Healing doesn't come through strategies. doesn't come through prescriptions. It actually comes through acknowledging a sense of possibility and offering to ourselves 
the qualities and the space in which we can be, in which we can be still, in which we can listen. Here we actually create a healing space for ourselves, for others. We see in the silence, in the practice, in the commitment to being present, we actually bond together in very profound and intimate ways. And we create here an environment which is free of expectation and free of demand. Free of expectation and free of demand. There are no demands. There is a culture of allowing. This is what we learn in meditation, the culture of allowing. The culture of generosity, of allowing all things to be. And we see that we flower in that culture. And this is a training we are doing here. It's a training for ourselves because this is perhaps very contrary to the culture, inner culture that we are uh, accustomed to. We are creating here together a culture of allowing and learning to be intimate with that. Learning to be at ease within that. And within that, we see how profound the healing can be, how much we soften. And in softening within ourselves, how much the barriers between self and other also soften. How much we can extend an openness and spaciousness, how much we can let go. And how much by being present, we heal the present. And by healing the present, we also heal the past. By healing the present, we heal the past. And the present is healed by the generosity and allowing that we learn to bring to this culture. If we have just a couple of moments, quietly together, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.